welcome to today's Connectal Conversation on Regenerative Cities. Cities and how they are going to develop in the world are a massive conversation and a massive strategic issue for the future of humanity. Today we have 37 megacities around the world. Megacities are cities with 10 million or more people, uh, places like Tokyo that have 38 million, Mexico City that have 21 million, but there are also new cities growing up around the world all over the place. And I, I, it, in places like uh, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Kazakhstan, Malaysia, China, and India, cities that I've never heard of, like Songado in Korea, Putrajaya, Nantui, cities are being built all of the time all over the world. And by 2050, the UN predicts that 70% of us will live in cities all over the place, all over the world. And there are many different views on how those cities should be developed. We have smart cities, uh, the UN program with the Sustainable Development Goals cities. We recognize that smart cities and technology is an important way forward. Green cities is a concept, but today we're specifically going to be talking about regenerative cities. And I'm really pleased to be joined by somebody who I think is certainly for me being a groundbreaking author of Donut Economics, Kate Raworth. And we're also joined by Natasha McIntyre-Hall, who is Assistant Strategic Developer at Portsmouth City Council, who's responsible for the development of that city in the UK. And for those of you who don't know the UK that well, Portsmouth is a city on the south coast of England uh, with around 230,000 residents. It's got a huge naval history, um, but being on the coast has a real challenge. Uh, both in terms of its environment and how it builds for it for more people that are coming to that community because it doesn't have a lot of land to build on it's either up or out into the ocean so we have two very different perspectives a very strategic thinker in kate and somebody who's at the sharp end of delivering what a regenerative city looks like so welcome both of you thank you um, i'm going to ask you to give a quick introduction to yourselves and to your background. I make the assumption that everybody that comes to my broadcast knows what regenerative is. But Kate, I might ask you to say upfront, what is a regenerative economy in the context of a city? Oh, hi. Well, thanks for joining me, uh, inviting me to join you here, Jenny. Um, what is a regenerative economy? Well, for me, a regenerative economy is an economy that works with and within the cycles of the living world. So we start with the reality of earth systems and we design cities and businesses and all places but today let's focus on cities we design to work with the cycles of the living world so that we are not drawing on nature's sources beyond she can regenerate them we are not disposing our waste into sinks beyond her capacity to assimilate them so the principles the waste from one process becomes food for another run on renewable energy needs to be modular by design. I believe it needs to be open source and to do that. And then how you do that in a city, well, that's part infrastructure of the actual physical layout of a place, but it's also partly the deeper economic design of the institutions and of the incentives and the organizational shapes that are given space to become part of a 21st century ecosystem of interaction. 
and what does that look like for you, Natasha, in a, a, a city the size of Portsmouth? Well, uh, first off, there's only certain amounts of uh, Portsmouth we can actually affect at any one time. So um, really focusing on where we have the ability to look at um, new developments, larger developments in the first instance, to be able to uh, create real change. Um, I'll be talking mostly around a development that we call Tipner West. And um, Tipner West is not only a gateway because it's physically, so Portsmouth is an island city, it's the only UK island city. It has three roads on and off the island and what we're looking at is a site that is the first junction on one of those major major roads coming onto Portsmouth. So it's a gateway site for that but it's also a gateway site because we believe that that's the catalyst for change and it means that smaller developments that may not have the ability to sort of push that regenerative message actually they can do when we've got a larger project to be able to show that we are following those principles. Excellent. So you, I talked about at the outset that there are many different approaches to design for cities from smart cities, the UN SDGs. What would you say are the, what are the real core issues that cities are having to get a grip on to be able to play a part in helping to deliver a regenerative economy? What are the you know, what's at the heart of the challenge? Um, I can start on that one if you want. Yeah. Um, so um, just very quickly, a, a, a little bit about me. I've been private sector consultancy and worked in large scale regeneration for a long, long time. And I decided to come to public sector. So I currently work for the council. I've decided to try and use my powers for good. Um, so um, coming over to the council, I came a because a lot of the responsibilities lie with local government organizations. And that comes with its own challenges. So we have land in our control, but actually the land is very broken up in the city um, and finding a way of actually accessing that land um, is very difficult. And the timing involved in that is, is tricky. People talk a lot about CPO as if it's a magic bullet and it's not, and it takes a long time and it requires an awful lot of, um, of uh, dedication of resources in terms of people and money and time just to get to the point where you can start looking at CPO in the first place. So land assembly is a huge issue. And then it's about funding. Um, and I know that we will touch on it a bit later, but trying to make sure that we can secure the funding to be able to generate income to support councils who've had their income cut from the central government. So now with COVID having made a significant Sort of impact to all councils in terms of their debt how do we justify spending money on something that could be considered unnecessary or frivolous to look at something that may not then get built so it's a very the risk around spending that money is um, hugely complex as well so we're you know so we're looking at things like risk management uh, we're looking at things like limited investment, um, but also, I hate this phrase, it has dogged me in the sustainability world, making the business case for doing the right things. I don't think you should have to make the business case for doing the right thing, because I think it should be damn obvious that we are in a circumstance what we, where we need to, but which is where I think things like I have found the donut enormously effective as a tool that helps people see the potential of, 
of what a regenerative development or an economy could look like. So I'm interested to hear, Kate, what you have to, to, to add in to what Nicola's had to say there. Natasha, sorry, I called you Nicola. So I, so I really uh, respect Natasha saying she's moved from consultancy into the council to use her knowledge to make things happen. And, is, and I can hear from everything she's saying is working at that interface of current commercial financial realities. Um, I say the word reality with a, an irony because it's, it's, it's a construct. We've designed economic systems that reward some things and we have a financial system that expects a return. No matter a crisis, no matter a pandemic, no matter a session, money wants its return. Uh, it's a design and we can redesign it. I, I want to start somewhere else because if we start inside business in the business case, we'll just get stuck inside it and we yeah. end up justifying everything else to it. So I'm going to step right outside of it. Yeah. And yeah, I'm going to start with a donut. So here's the donut. Yay. And it's a, a compass for the 21st century. The goal is to leave nobody falling short in the hole without the essentials of life. These are from the sustainable development goals. So all the governments in the world have already agreed to that. But don't overshoot the outer circle. Don't overshoot Earth's uh, life supporting systems. This is from leading Earth system scientists denying planetary boundaries. So meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. And to me, these are the realities of human rights and of ecological integrity. These are the realities we need to start with. And we need to redesign our economies and our financial system and our city structures to reflect these realities. It's easy to say, it's not at all easy to do. But let's start here. Uh, I first drew a version of this in 2012 and ever since it was first drawn people wanted to say okay that's the global story but can we downscale it for here because most policy making takes place in a place whether it's at the national level or indeed the city level so people have wanted to downscale it and the thing that I'm most uh, excited about and, and pleased to have done over the past year is to work with Janine Benyus who is a leading biomimicry thinker and we put our heads together and we came up with a way of downscaling the donut to a place and we believe it could work at multiple scales. So we first done it for the city of Amsterdam. Uh, but I'll tell you the question that we invite every place to ask itself and to all these wonderful people popping up all over the world on the chat. Ask yourself this of the place you live, whether it's a city or a town or a nation. So how can this place be a home to thriving people in a thriving natural habitat while respecting the well-being of all people? and the health of the whole planet. So what you've got in there is local aspiration to be thriving people in a thriving place, set in the context of global responsibility. And it's got both the social aspiration, thriving people, what does it mean here to thrive for people? And what does it mean, the ecological story, what does it mean for this place to thrive? So it's local and global, social and ecological. And so it's got these four lenses that we call it a portrait of a place. And to me, this is where we, we need to begin. Uh, what does it mean that for the people of a place to thrive? Uh, you could ask the people of Tipna West, what does it mean to thrive here? Or you could ask the people of Berlin or of Cairo, that uh, all these places popping up. What does it mean? Because it's going to mean different things in each of these nations, according to culture, history, context. What does it mean for this place to thrive, the ecology of this place to thrive? So where are we? Where on planet Earth is Tipna West? Where is Cairo? What is the... What is nature's genius here? And this is Janine Benyus's mm. real contribution. Yeah. What is nature doing here? How is nature sequestering carbon? How is nature housing biodiversity, storing water, cooling the air? And what would it mean if our place, our city, mimicked and, and matched nature's performance? And that I just find brilliant because it's wildly ambitious and utterly natural that we should create places that mimic what nature's already doing here. So that's the local aspiration. Then we set it in the context of global responsibility. 
how do we ensure that the way we're living, that the clothes I'm wearing, the food I had for breakfast, the, the mobile phone I have, the electronics, all the construction materials that are coming in, who sewed our clothes, picked the food, mined the materials, assembled the phones, what are the wage conditions and the, and the working conditions facing them? So people worldwide, they may be just beyond the city, they may be in the rural area around it, or they may be on the other side of the world, but how do we ensure that the global supply chains of procurement are respecting people's rights? And how do we ensure, finally, the ecological, ecological story, how do we ensure that we're living within our share of planetary boundaries? So how do we reduce our carbon footprint, our nitrogen footprint, land, water footprint? And to get there, you need much more circular designs, designs that we say we use and reuse materials again and again, instead of endlessly mining them. So it brings these four lenses, which invite places to explore their stories and their values from four very different perspectives. The lovely thing is, I think in every place, there are people who are passionate about each one of those. Yeah, definitely. And then to put that together, now you'll start to see all sorts of tensions mm -hmm. between, as you asked, how do you, how do you have the local thriving, but then in the context of global responsibility, all sorts of synergies, but also all sorts of new possibilities of what well, we need to just do things differently. Mm -hmm. And then for me, we ultimately bring this to the business world and the financial world and say, we know what we need to actually change the norms of finance and the structures and the laws that shape businesses because they need to reflect this reality this is reality and they need to be re redesigned to make that happen now i just will say lastly i know that's easy for me to say and natasha and people like herself are dealing day to day with tomorrow's right the decisions that are going on in the local council this week and this month so it we have to work on two tracks you have to make that short term or the, that feasible business case to policymakers today and you often have to speak the current language of power and try and frame it in in terms of longer term financial returns or there'll be all sorts of paybacks or saved costs or risk assessments and i think we need to just change the norms of finance and the norms of um, development to take account of far longer time horizons far wider value variables like a stable climate and the health of the people so it's on it's working on two tracks yeah, and, I, um, and hugely complex into complex. into the bargain. And I, you know, I think my experience of taking the donut into small villages um, and having conversations is actually fundamentally about trying to change the way people think yeah. um, uh, uh, and how they actually think about the place in which they live. But I'm curious, Natasha, listening to listening to that, how how do you see that kind of complexity? and thinking playing out in the development of a place like Titna? Um, thank you. Um, I think it's, it's really fascinating. Um, can I start off just by telling a little bit about Titna West and why Titna West is relevant in this conversation? Yeah. Um, so Titna West is a site that we're looking at at the moment. Um, we are looking to reclaim land from the sea, which is tricky in itself. We are looking, the ultimate development will have around about um, three and a half, four, 4,000 residential units on it. Um, it will have a million square foot of marine and maritime employment. But what's actually important about what we're looking at in Tipner West is we are trying our very best to make sure, obviously, there's a biodiversity net gain um, and all the things that come as a result of policy. But more than that, what we're trying to do is think about the way that people use the community that they live in and assume that that is part of infrastructure. So cars, for example, that's the biggest one for me, are not to be as a not to be included as an afterthought where we put roads on afterwards, let everyone park outside the house 
and cars dominate the landscape because they are the fastest moving heaviest things so going back to where we came from at the beginning of Tipner West is I looked around Portsmouth particularly but you can look around any um, any town that is perhaps not entirely in its uh, in its heyday and you will find that there are areas that were built particularly built in a hurry after the war and they were built for the average person at the time and the average person was deemed to have absolutely no problems with mobility or the way that yeah. they deal with emotions now if you try and follow the path which i do on some of the talks um, that i do of someone coming out of the front door and then navigating their way out of their own building into their own community you don't need to have any uh you know emotional complexities to find it a very hostile environment so our first question came from if we are going to create community which is hugely important and and going back to the, what kate said about thriving for us about thriving is belonging and it's being part of a community how do we make sure that people feel engaged the moment they walk out the door and mostly they come out of that by walking into a good quality public space so how do we do that how do we make sure because when again walking around sort of areas of portsmouth you find that there are loads of bollards and loads of um short fences to segregate areas but then people have had to put curbs in to keep cars separate but then you need to put in a drop curb because someone with wheels has to be able to negotiate it so suddenly thinking about walking along there if you've got a double buggy that you're pushing or you're walking along with a um, walking stick ground is uneven it is made for cars it's not made for people so what we talk about with Tipner is we talk about a curbless community so what if cars were part of the infrastructure we put them in a central location and then you have to walk or travel to your car now we suspect that in time i think covid's probably stepped us back in this way which is unusual um I, again we'll talk about it a bit later but um i think covid's helped us to progress a lot of things but in terms of car ownership we were definitely moving towards a point where actually loaning was a more was becoming more and more acceptable and i suspect that it still will do in in time but actually as soon as you take cars away from that you can start to look at the environment completely differently and you can start to think about what a person would feel like so that's really where we came from in the first place and then we thought about how can people get to work how can people work in this area so connectivity is massively important so how do we make that easy for people but change the normal so yeah that that's really where we came from Tipna. um in case it's so interesting that you're saying about uh working backwards with the finance um guys because i actually had a conversation on that this morning oh, well um, where i'm i'm saying to off um the finance team looking at it you know consultants cannot say to us what you're doing is radical and it's brilliant and we think it will be reputational changing and we think it's a catalyst for change and we're really thrilled about it and we will put x percent increase onto the value of this as a result of everything you're doing they can't do that because they haven't seen it enough places everywhere else which means we end up with an ambitious optimistic project that's going to change the way that people live their lives it's going to change the relationship with their environment but yet we really struggle to make it look financially viable so we need people to understand that what we're doing is different and it needs to be dealt with differently 
So it's it's a really, really, really fascinating construct, exactly as you said. And we are trying our very best to tackle it from both sides of saying, this is what we want, this is how you model it right now, but actually this is what we believe it's worth. And that's actually part of me talking to people to understand this is different. This hasn't been done anywhere else, certainly not in the UK. And we have huge ambitions and we're happy to talk to anyone about it to understand what lessons there are that we can help other people or they can help us, particularly on making this something that can become a financial reality. I, I think that's one of the, you know, Kate touched on it and you touched on it. Um, the, the, the critical things is when a society or a civilization, if you want to go big, it is, is stepping into uh, a, a potential for a new paradigm, a new way of looking at how, uh, how we deal with our impacts on the planet as a species, is there is, uh, there is nothing to anchor a future vision to. Things have to be different. And therefore, when it comes to financing in particular, which is uh, an economics, I think, hopefully, Kate, you will agree with me, is quite a conservative profession with yourself as the great exception. Um, it is, they are used to making decisions based on past track records. So on, so they can use forecasting as a way to plan, design and fund and, uh, and invest in things. Whereas actually, uh, we need people to think more from a point of view of scenario planning is this is how our ecology may play out. This is how climate change may impact our place. How do we design for and invest in place from uh, those perspectives go Kate before I get into a rant here no no building on this so first of all as a mother of twins uh living in a street densely lined with cars I would have loved to live in the place that Natasha is making with curbless and and I imagine the car is respectful visitor right the car is to slow right down so that it respects the actual pace of life which is two feet and two wheels and a scooter and a bike um so yeah bring it on um <laughs> I wanted to say that, so, so starting with economics, economics doesn't have an explicit goal written into it. Uh, back in the 1870s, economists wanted to make it a science. Science doesn't have goals, so you take the goal out and then it just becomes this self, uh, a cuckoo goal of, of, of growth and at the micro level return, so financial return. So the, the, and, and the government's green book, which is the book that the treasury assesses even public projects on is all around what is the return, the financial return? Everything has to be priced in as a, as a value, financial value. And you're lucky if it can be priced in and if it can't be, you have a price on it, it doesn't get reflected. So we've got people in the chat box saying we need multiple values, totally agree. We've got to move away from this metric of the financial return. And, and what's exciting to me is some cities, particularly leading cities like Amsterdam, where we first did the, the city portrait of the donut, I've got it here. This, is, this was published in April. One of the reasons why Amsterdam did this is because they've given themselves new goals. So they are, they've committed to, and it's called legislation. It's just a vision plus legislation is a goal. So uh, let's have a city that's free of fossil fuel traffic by 2030. There will be no fossil fuel vehicles driving around within 10 years. Uh, let's have a city that is 100% a circular economy by 2050. That's a nationwide goal and they've taken it on the city and they were starting to adopt these goals. That, and then when they saw the donut, they said, well, that just gives a, an umbrella frame to what we're already committed to do. And so they adopt it. Now, when you've got a place that says 
we're going to put in place legislation and by the way in the uk we have climate change legislation it's too far out it should be much earlier but we can use that kind of legislation in places and say i'm sorry this is not just about how much is the financial return we have an obligation as a nation to come back within our climate impact and by the way it's not just climate it's our water use it's our foot land footprint it's our nutrient flow we have an obligation to design places to develop places that come back within these so we're not just talking about financial return there are other values that are being stated and they're best expressed they're currently best expressed through restraining regulations that say cut carbon and that's what creates a city taking on an ambition of saying well we're going to have to do circular design so in amsterdam they're starting to create places in the city where building materials will be kept so that they can be used and reused. Buildings have to be not what they call glued shut, like the materials are kind of glued in place, you have to smash it down when it's done, but they're bolt, bolted together, click, click open, so you can click it open, and, and it changes the very design because the regulations require it. And then this just feeds through into the financial uh, expectations, and it, it has to, it has to counterbalance finance just saying, you know, give me the business case, give me the business case. It is not the only value on the planet. And actually, I, I, I wish it were the other way around that we make the case of, um, you know, you make the case of what makes sense on earth. And then we ask ourselves what kind of financial system supports this. And I think it's going to be a lot more public finance. It's going to be a lot long term finance. It's, it's not going to be finance that's based on the idea that if I put a little bit of money in what you're doing, I can expect to withdraw 3% forever. Nothing in nature works like that. It's really bizarre that we think money should. I, I, that is so true. I, I think that, that, you know, again, it comes back down to, I think, how do we change our way, our first, our mental models and our way of thinking about how things should work, how an economy should work, how a place should work. And I'm also interested, um, you know, I, I thought it was particularly pertinent with Amsterdam is that they came at this already having made a commitment, commitment to the circular economy and overlaid uh, the, the, the donut on top of that to give themselves a, a structural rigor around which to, uh, to, to develop different strands of, of their thinking, um, which also brings me to a point of what a city or a town or any place can be in terms of its systemic impact that if a city or a development like Tipna is designed in a particular way that it can have a wider systemic impact on the system the ecological and the social system that it that it sits within uh, as a catalyst for change and i'm you know i'm wondering how that's playing out in amsterdam and i believe now copenhagen's also on board is you know how do they see their systemic potential to create change because you know i know with tipner um, that it systemically is creating new thinking inside the development community and so how's that playing out in in amsterdam and and, and places like Copenhagen too. So um, we're setting up Donut Economics Action Lab uh, in very intentionally to turn donut economics from being an idea in a book to being action in the world. So it's, it's action-oriented, not, not ideas, and it's a lab because we're exploring and learning. And we're working with five thematic areas, with cities and places, the focus of today, with education and research, with government and policymaking at the national level, with businesses and enterprise, and with community organizations. And in each of those areas, and what I'm seeing, it's affirming uh, my suspicion of one of the very powerful ways that change happens. 
and it's not rocket science, but it's really beautiful to see it in action. People are inspired by people like themselves who are doing that thing that they thought was impossible, but you're doing it. Yeah. Maybe we can do that too. And it, it, you just see it. Uh, so Amsterdam deciding to publish the, the portrait we made for them with them. Uh, they published it in the middle of COVID because they say, well, we're a city. We have to keep, we have to keep moving. We have to keep having policy. Otherwise we'll have this great big backlog at the end. They publish it there and it got massive pickup internationally, partly because more, I think partly because COVID, first of all, you go down into emergency and then people start to raise their head and say, from, from here, where? And suddenly here's a model of us and it's, you know, donut sounds ridiculous, but then a city like Amsterdam, we've heard of, well, they're quite, you know, they're quite innovative. They're taking this seriously. Huh? Maybe there's something here. Maybe we can do it to it's safe now to follow. I don't know if you know the wonderful lesson, the, the video on YouTube of leadership lessons from a dancing guy, a guy dancing yes. on a hillside. Yes, all I alone. saw that. And then one friend comes and another friend comes and then everybody's dancing. And I think of that again and again. So for me, the best thing is that I found out that Copenhagen City Council passed a resolution in the council to say we must come up with a plan for making an economic and financial plan for Copenhagen to become a donut city. I found out about this on Twitter. I mean, that's just <laughs> wonderful, right? It's Thank not like God I was tweeting and pushing. And now it's popping up everywhere. There's a plan in Costa Rica to have regenerate Costa Rica in the city of Cali, Colombia. They're using the donut for, for city planning. We're now hearing from other cities and places. It's like popcorn going off. So the inspiration that I, I have no doubt that what they're doing in Tipna West and what Natasha's working on, whatever the struggle is to get that first landmark piece happening, it will signal a new kind of living. And it will, people say, well, why, why, why are you building the old style? Over there in Tipna West, they've got, they've got curbless pavements. Why are you? And it just triggers that this new normal is possible. And why can't we have that here? It's, you know, that thing that your peer is doing that looked impossible, but they're doing it and suddenly, so, so all, all power to the pioneers because they have yep. massive ripple effects. Yeah, and I, I think that's completely true in that, again, coming back to the point I was making earlier, is we don't have anything to look back on as an example of how to do this. So those first movers, those pioneer species, those little pioneer plants that first appear, uh, you know, after a massive bushfire are really vitally important in how we create change. Um, but going back to, I wasn't going to touch on COVID-19 because I think we're all a bit COVIDed out, even though it is still going on as a massive global issue. But I wonder how the global experience of COVID-19 is going to have an impact, both negative and positive, on this opportunity to take a fresh look at what, uh, what a city as a regenerative living system looks like. Um, what, what do you think that the, the, I mean, creativity comes out of constraints, effectively, I, I, I believe. So what do you both think the positive opportunity of COVID-19 is and what do you kind of constraints do you think it might put on where you're both trying to go? Um, I, uh, I, th I think uh, obviously it's a horrific thing that's happened but one of the things that we talk about a lot is actually as a catalyst for change it's allowing us to think 10 years in advance in a very short period of time. Um, and the discussions that we're having at the moment is a lot about how do we make sure we don't lose everything that we've just learned through lockdown by slipping back into old traditions and old ways. 
And I think actually that's a really good metaphor for everything we're doing, particularly in construction, because construction is not a particularly forward thinking um, industry. Um, I think the stuff that you were saying really, uh, Kate, on um, uh, the circular economy is absolutely fascinating. And in Tipner West, we are one of the first in the UK uh, to do a regeneration where we're using BIM right from the very beginning so that we can start looking at these buildings, understanding how they interact with the environment that's there and then how at some point or another, how we can take them back down because we need to. We, we need to think about this development as more than just a 50 year thing that's, that's built. Um, it's um, what's really particularly interesting about the way that we've reacted to the pandemic um, is the fact that I think it gives us more opportunity to think of people as individuals because with isolation and particularly with bubble communities and stuff people always are, are looking in and they're looking to understand what happened they need to be able to find somewhere that they can have their own you know private time private experiences but yet they want to feel connected to the community they don't want to feel lonely whilst they're doing this and suddenly that changes the way that you can really think about it so again i mean i i'm, I'm so I'm so pleased that we were thinking about these things on Tipner West before this came along. So actually we get to say to people, look, here is actually a response to what's happened that's already fairly well thought about. Um, and one of the phrases that we band around again is about being able to find your tribe. It's, it's not that you're living in their pocket, but you should be able to find it. And so it's flexibility of space. Is that square that's over there? Is that used by the cafe the whole time? Well, no, it's, it's used at peak times. So can we have a yoga class in there? Or at what point in the development does the over 60s act growing go on? You know, how, how do you find your people? How do you find the bit that you connect to? So um, I think that a pandemic has really helped us to understand people as people rather than people yeah. as a demographic. Yeah. I'll, I'll just add on there just about the, the impact of COVID. Just so many things, but just a couple that um, are worth adding. Uh, so again, I'm coming back to economic thinking. 20th century economics, ask a student, uh, what, what are the different sectors of the economy? They'll probably say, well, there's the market, and then there's a state for the bits that the market can't do well. So you get this market state, market state, which is basically because men wrote economics and they saw those bits. And what COVID has done is made absolutely obvious that there are two other fundamental forms of provisioning for, for our well-being, which you cannot ignore. The first is the household, where we begin every day and in COVID, we've been locked in it every day, for better, for worse, right? So, so that household self-provisioning and, and people who haven't been deeply stressed by the, by the virus have discovered cooking and growing vegetables in a beautiful way and really rec reclaiming the household. And let's recognize that the household context has been very, very stressful. There's been a rise in domestic violence in many places mm -hmm. because of the strains of stresses of being in that household and the dynamics of who does the work and who does the caring. As a, as a mother of 11-year-olds, you know, trying to set up an organization and homeschool my kids and feed them three meals a day. Woo, it's, it's been yeah. really hard. So you can't forget the household. And the fourth one, you can't forget the commons, no. right? The, 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 the community, everything that Natasha was just describing. I live on a street that never used to really connect. I, I always just regretted that. It's cars go up and down my street yeah. and there's no real community. Suddenly we have a WhatsApp group, we're connecting. 
and we've got a commons here and that's been the best thing for me about the lockdown of meeting my neighbours and a lot of the debate is about student houses next to old people's houses and who can have a party until what time and that's what it means to sort stuff out in the neighbourhood so it's really valuable. So market state and the household and the commons let no economics teacher ever forget these two fundamental forms of well-being. We, Covid has made them very very obvious. The other thing I would say is, uh, for me, a lot of part of regenerative design is making it far more distributive. So, so, so as well as working with and within the cycles of the living world, I believe we need societies that ensure that value isn't concentrated in few hands, but that value and opportunity are shared far more equitably. So we need structures and systems that do that. A really nice example is public transport, like in Curitiba in Brazil. Yeah. You've got this dedicated lane for the bus. It's clean, it's efficient, it's affordable. Why would you not take the bus? It goes so much faster than the traffic. Now, so it's like the sense of public luxury, public places where parks, where people can get together instead of everyone having their own private garden and swimming pool and trampoline. Public transport that works better than the private. It's really hard as everything Natasha has been saying, it's hard to build shared and public luxury in that yeah. sense when we are required to have physical distancing, when people are afraid to go on the bus. So it, it makes sense as she's saying, there's this, there's, we've been moving towards shared vehicles and then suddenly people through, through that fear of connection and touch are pulling back. So how do cities take the opportunity? Paris has done really well um, to, to, to shift and many other cities to shift lanes you know what cars thank you your century was last century this is the moment just to give it over to the wheels to the bikes to the scooters and there's beautiful videos on the internet of old traffic in paris and then suddenly scooting everywhere how do you hold that and maintain that um so and i've heard mayors actually from some cities say you know before covid i was wanting to make this transition in for example in in giving more space to the bikes and and, and cyclists and walkers and, and i thought i had to have a 10-year plan and go carefully and and covid's just made me bold come on let's just do this now and so the possibility the speed of possibility and what can be done as everyone said more can be done where than we think we 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 censor ourselves in terms of time ambition and we think it's unrealistic well you know what it's, it's realistic and we can do it and make that shift. And there are so many people who've been waiting a long time to say, at last, curbless pavements, at last, more sense, more space for cyclists. So I like the boldness that I've seen some mayors in cities use this moment to make that transition. I think for those, uh, for our listeners there, if you haven't come across the story of Curitiba um, in Brazil, it's really worth looking at. Jaime Lerner, who's been the mayor there for three decades, um, really started a process, a very interesting approach to creating a regenerative city, which I, I think of as acupuncture points, looking at his existing landscape, which was uh, full of slums and lacked green space and lacked social provision. And by just taking a monster map, um, looking at all of the potential acupuncture points and things he could change over decades to gradually uh, create a completely different urban experience. And he now has a, uh, an urban design school there. Um, so it's you know, really worth looking at. Um, I think there's another interesting question that I'd like to ask you both before we go to some of the, some, there's some fascinating questions coming up in the chat box, um, which is really around the qualities of leaders who were doing this work. You know, what have you found you've had to develop in you as, as, as pioneer species, as leaders taking this kind of step? 
and, and what advice would you give to other people like on the cusp of wanting to be braver and bolder as you say Kate? I, I can go. Um, I, uh, I, was, I was actually the first thing that caught into my mind was thick skin but actually I think it's the opposite of that completely. You have to not be afraid to feel. Um, I regularly do this by I put myself in the in the place of other people what would it be like to live there what would it be like to feel that and experience that every day um one of one of the things um is very easy um certainly in the uk to be able to choose to only eat organic or to be vegetarian or to try and give up plastic it's very, very difficult to choose a place that you want to live that is, is already living those qualities for you. And so you can only be so good in your life and being able to offer people opportunities. But if you take the emotion out of it, then you come back to the only being money. <laughs> it needs emotion. These are places people are going to live. These are places that people need to love. Um, and so I try my very best to use my passion, my enthusiasm, but also my understanding of how these things develop. So politicians, politicians sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, get a very, very hard time. But certainly the politicians in Portsmouth, they're around for a short amount of time. And so asking them to make a decision based on a popular vote for something that's not going to be delivered for 10 years is very difficult to ask them to get on board with. And you have to be able to do it if you're doing a cross-party um, agreement. But as soon as there are elections, it's their job to basically pull the other one down and so it's very very difficult to get that long-term agreement and it's something that is really really important so i again I, I go back to the fact that being human listening to people even when it feels horrible to listen to people because they're telling you your ideas are all bollocks it's actually that that's really what makes it is i will keep standing up i will keep telling you why this is the right thing to do and you can keep coming to me, but it won't work because of this and it won't work because of that. And I will keep trying to overcome those obstacles, but I'm not going anywhere because I believe that this is the right thing to do. Well said that woman. Kate. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Don't have thick skin, have skin. Great. Um, just to add to that. So I, I really believe that 21st century economics is going to be practiced first and theorized later. So what I'm doing is running around with a donut. And, and talking about dynamics of from degenerative to regenerative, from divisive to distributive. And when, when I used to give the, the talks in um, book festivals, and sometimes people come up to us and say, could you sign, could you sign this book? And sometimes the, my favorite feedback that really helped me know the role I can play here is that either somebody would say, you know, I run a, 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 I run a furniture making business using reclaimed wood and we're creating jobs for the local youth and, and and this book puts a theory on what i'm doing and it gives a theoretical framework to what i was already doing i think brilliant because yeah. you're practicing it and i'm just trying to describe a theoretical framework of an economy that already exists of patterns that we already can see but they're not yet fully recognized and we need to if this theoretical framework can help make them more visible brilliant uh, i had a lovely occasion once a young woman came up to me with a copy of my book and she said would you sign this my dad bought it he read it and he gave it to me and he said, I think I finally understand what it is that you're doing with your life. 
and it's that thing, you know donut is family therapy but it enabled him to see oh well i thought my daughter was doing some weird hokey thing and oh it makes sense from this regenerative distributive so to me the the, the concept of the donut and donut economics gives it, it offers somebody a goal you know if, yeah. if, if you're looking for ways of framing goals you could talk about having a circle economy or a zero carbon economy and, for, and and that's great if that works and for some places they'll say we're going to we're going to bite the bullet and, and talk about donuts, however ridiculous that sounds. But actually, if this works as a frame, as a goal, adopt it. And then so much that you are already wanting to make happen, so much that's already can be made visible if we look at it through these lens, we can see. And that's what we're doing in Amsterdam. There's a wonderful Amsterdam Donut Coalition, a group of, gosh, over 200 people now who want to show that the patterns of the new economy are already in motion they're already there if you care to draw them together and make them visible again i think that's just a hugely valuable role to play it, it, and it's so exciting i think exactly what you're saying there kate is what i've found when i've been working with the donut in smaller communities and towns and villages is its accessibility a there's something about a circular shape that works with the human mind so much better than the linear kind of economy thinking that we have struggled to fit ourselves into but it allows conversation to take place it allows people to dream it's so flexible it allows people to say oh in in our village actually what we'd really love what we care about coming back to what you're saying there natasha about creating places that care is it is we'd like to have a river that we could swim in so actually we need to have a conversation with the farmers upstream because the reason that we can't have uh, a river that we can swim in is to do with uh, agricultural runoff or it's to do with the fact that our water board is continually dump accidentally dumping sewage into our riverway and and that's an ecological dream and a social dream that is worth pursuing in other villages sometimes they come back and say well well actually you know we we don't have any way to access uh, organic food without going to the nearest city uh, so how can we do that? How can we acquire a piece of land from a farmer and build an organic community food center here? Other people want to build a sustainable transport system from their small village to the place where they travel by train into London. And guess what? After COVID, now they're thinking to themselves, well, maybe we won't actually travel into London anymore. So we'll look at it differently. Uh, but I rant on. Let's get to some questions that we have before we arrive at the end of an hour. And I, I could talk to you both for, for absolutely hours because we've had some really interesting questions, uh, both in the chat box, but also uh, beforehand. And one of those was, you know, how do you manage the dilemmas and trade-offs between the global and local focus to nurture prosperous cities. Um, Kate, maybe from your experience with Amsterdam, you might want to speak to that a bit. Sure, and it's uh, a great question. So the framework that we've created, and I'll just say the four, the four lenses again, it's uh, how do we be thriving people in a thriving place, local aspiration, while respecting the well-being of all people and the health of the whole planet. Um, that's a tall order. Right, yeah. that's a lot to think about. Um, many places naturally first think about people's health and education and transport and food here, 
and oh let's make sure we have clean air and clean water here and let's be a lovely place to live and i think particularly in high income countries um in the world's wealthiest cities that are and, and all cities draw resources in right that's what yeah. makes them a city they're drawing resources yeah. they're, they're they're sucking points and we ha they all have an, a responsibility to say where are we drawing from and how are we impacting and by the way also where are we throwing our waste out don't want to know about it just go somewhere yeah. and so there is that global responsibility and it means and, and then the, the awareness of climate change is the place where coming back within our climate footprint our ecological footprint is where it's come first and in our frame where we said and we need to think about people the fair trade movement is decades old so we we know what it means to care about this we're asking cities to look at their procurement practices and th and there's lo lovely um synergy there because many many cities are saying oh let's think about anchor institutions right think about institutions that have a sort of mission-based focus that aren't going to run away of schools hospitals the council council services now we can think about who we're buying from and where we're buying from and some of that's being relocalized and how can we buy well from local organizations rather than buying last minute from a big global corporation but also thinking about the, the, the supplies that are coming from far away and how do we make sure we're respecting the rights of people who can't show up in our city and complain and so it's it's a bigger job but thanks to transparency through digital supply chains that's just getting better and better i've been working on labor rights in global supply chains since 2003. there was no data we had to as oxfam we had to sort of you know go around factories and uncover it and now you can practically trace the supply chain so we get that the data is coming through and it means that we can have new metrics we can move away from gdp invented nearly 100 years ago right simon kuznets himself would say you what you invented that in the 1930s because there was nothing else look all the data you've got you come on move into the 21st century let's have a dashboard and let's i mean i would love to see buildings that have on them a dashboard that tells you in real time how much the built this carbon this building sequestering how much it's cleaning the air but also that reflect where did the materials come from that you you know one day we should have apps that you can see oh it came from oh, apparently the, the cement here came from a mine in india not sure mm, not sure about the labor rights going on there this is all totally possible the only reason it doesn't exist yet is because some companies don't want us to know it the, the information is all there it's just not wanted to be known i look forward to a time where that information is in the hands of cities it doesn't mean the dilemmas go away but it means we face up much more to how do we balance these multiple challenges I, as you were talking about that, Kate, um, Patagonia's program uh, instituted back in the late 80s, early 90s sprang to mind, um, uh, uh, which uh, was called the um, Something Chronicles. And I, I helped produce it and design it. And now I can't remember its name, which is driving me insane. But, but they did that with everything in their supply chain. So right. every garment that you buy, you can find out exactly where it's been right. made, where all of the component parts have come from, um, you know, and I, I, so, so I'm imagining that at Tip in the West now, Natasha, that's a challenge for you. Yeah. Um, do you know what, actually, I was sort of smiling away to myself as you're saying these things, because those are some of the aspirations we've got. Maybe we're not taking it far enough, listening to what you're saying, but actually, again, this is why we introduced BIM so early. Now, very quickly people who, who don't know uh, what BIM is building information management or modeling and it's just about it's a collaborative way of working but it's also a way of being able to document stuff about your buildings and your built environment as a whole um, and it should help with the facilities management 
But by having that online and having it cloud-based and all of those good things, there should be absolutely no reason why there can be a QR code on a building that actually tells you how the building was created, how it's running, what its credentials are right now, and actually talking, being able to offer some insight into how that building is communicate or how it's contributing to the environment that it's in, which is completely, yeah, completely doable. But I think one of the other things, knowing that we've got this issue with finance linking back into it, is being able to use other metrics to demonstrate. So for example, at Tipner West, we took, a, again, another bold decision, I think, of making sure that the waterfront was accessible to everyone. So we have no premium properties that have dedicated waterfront. Instead, it's open to all. But we, in doing that, we've opened up an extra 2.25 kilometers of waterfront that's accessible to everyone. Now, we wanna measure that, and we want to understand, actually, the impact that has on people's health, the fact that they have that accessible to them without having to go anywhere, without having to spend anything. So actually, is that a net benefit to the NHS? And we believe it will be. Can I just jump in right there? And I said, that's a beautiful example of what I was calling public luxury, right? Most developments say, oh, well, obviously, the first thing we do is sell off all the oceanfront land because that's the highest retail. So we'll like build some really expensive houses there and then some lower income houses can live sort of inland without a view. And you've taken the opposite route and said, actually, this space should be public luxury for everybody. It'll have all sorts of public health benefits. And of course, just make it a fabulous place to live. I want to raise my kids there because they can go out and play. So the, the and, and I can hear again, what you're needing to do is show us some sort of kind of quantification of the budget saved because people won't develop health problems. Because that's one bit you, the economists say, well, we can kind of quantify that. So we can give you some numbers there. And, you, you, you know, we all know very well, there's so much more. How, what, what is the value to a, a parent knowing that their kids can just run along the waterfront safely? I, my kids didn't have that. And I hugely wish they did. And that will never show up. And that's why the, the, the designs that you're creating with feeling for skin are always going to be richer and more valuable than, than the developers' uh, pages will ever reflect, which again, to me, just says we really need to think about different designs for the financing of development. These are public goods for hopefully Absolutely. for centuries. So the idea that today's developer who wants a quick return within 10, 20 years, I mean, that's just a passing person in the moment. These are- But much, I have to say, I think that there are larger developers who are now looking for that reputation change. Right. You know, corporate social, social responsibility has been floating around for a long time, but it's mostly a, a tick box exercise. And I think there are more who are wanting to do it. But again, I have no way of being able to put a value to that that makes it a useful asset. But I know that some of those big developers and those big last plans will want to be able to say, hey, look, we are taking this seriously and we're doing something different. And the first example of it is Tipner West, and we got involved in the first one. And I know it will have it will have some financial value, but that's not the most important thing. But it does mean that we can then prove to people that this is something that can go ahead. And one of the things that I'm delighted about being able to do as the council, yes, we still need to be able to make a profit just to make sure that we are helping to support the services, the frontline services. But we don't need to be as strict on it, and we don't need to be greedy. But we know that we need to partner with someone who has much more strict expectations on what that finance is. And that then, but we own the vision. 
we get to take it up to planning we get to say this is what's important to us and if you don't think it's important to us don't work with us I love that and that you know I was talking to Janine Benyus about this as well I was saying what, what happens when you come up with these beautiful biomimicry designs and the developer says ah, Janine come back when you can make the financial case it's like and and the, and the moment at which you can turn it around and say you know what if you don't get this don't work with us that's that is the flip that actually we really need and they need to become no 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 please 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 can we please can we? we want the reputation we want this credibility and it, to me it says again we need to find ways of naming of giving uh, uh you know titner west uh that development had this quality this kind of regenerative quality this kind of public luxury blah, 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 so that these things can be named and again made visible um just one i wanted to add in here because i can see lots of people in the chat box curious about um downscaling the donut i want to say this so this method that we did in amsterdam this time next week uh, next monday we're going to be publishing a accompanying document the methodology of how we did it because we're open sourcing everything we do so it'll be publicly available to anybody anywhere who wants to know how we did it and then we're inviting people to say oh how could we downscale that to what we're doing here and how can we make that relevant to what when we just say join our platform when we launch in september share back what you learn we'll all come up with so much better ideas together than anyone could alone absolutely and i encourage everybody that's listening to join the platform i was uh, lucky enough to be invited by kate to participate in some discussions about the early design and you can probably hear i'm a huge fan of the donut um and i'm i just want to keep talking because we we in these last five ten minutes we've touched on some really important issues so i might just have to invite you back again in the autumn both of you to talk more about them because you know that being able to tell a story through new metrics and new new imagining of uh, of how we measure what's valuable of of taking into account five different capitals um and I, I actually don't like personally calling them natural capital social capital because capital shrieks to me of of us trying to have a conversation with business as usual and use words that they understand and can identify with but it's what we're stuck with at the moment but I, i'd love to invite you both back to to explore that a little bit further in the autumn um but we're hitting the top of the hour and i like to respect people's time um, so I want to say an enormous thank you to Kate, I know you're always frantically busy for coming on. Natasha, I know you're dealing with the fallout of COVID-19 in a very complex city. So thank you both for coming on and sharing with everybody. Thanks to everybody who turned up in the audience today. Um, and I look forward to coming back to this. I think we've learned huge amounts from you both and I will take away uh, the excitement about the concept that you're launching with Janine and that feeling for skin. Um, I love how you, sh you shaped what Natasha was talking about that there, you know, how can we design cities and redesign cities and towns with feeling for skin? Look forward to that. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.